at the bottom of the triangle or the pyramid is the foundation, which is trust, which is so obvious. But trust is one of the things that's lacking on so many teams. And it's what I call vulnerability-based trust. And that is, can people be completely open about not only their strengths, but their weaknesses? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Lao Tzu. When the best leader's work is done, people say we did it ourselves. My guest today, Patrick Lencioni, is one of the most influential leadership thinkers in the world, and his work has also had an outsized impact on my company uh, and my own work. Pat is the co-founder and president of The Table Group and is a pioneer in the organizational health movement. He's the author of 13 books, which have sold over 8 million copies and been translated into more than 30 languages. As president of The Table Group, he spends his time speaking and writing about leadership, teamwork, and organizational health, and consulting with executives and their teams. And prior to founding the firm in 1997, Pat worked at Bain & Company, Oracle Corporation, and Sybase. Pat, welcome to the Elevate Podcast. It's great to be with you, Bob. This is fun. Yeah, this one's been a long, long time coming, but we, we made it work. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm sorry. You guys were so patient with us. My schedule's been nuts, but I'm so glad to finally be here. Uh, yeah, well, the, the question list just got longer, so uh, we'll we'll keep you around. So I'm, I, I kind of find origin stories interesting related to what people where people ended up in their chosen vocation. So in kind of thinking about a moment or moments from your early life, uh, was there anything kind of that stood out in terms of helping to kind of discover, trigger your passion for leadership? Absolutely. Um, I was, uh, my, my parents didn't go to college, so we, we weren't like corporate people at all, but my yeah. dad was a salesperson and he liked his job, but he'd come home for work frustrated almost every day because of uh, this thing he called management. I didn't know what management was. That was a word I didn't understand. It was this just this bad thing, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, what is that? And I love my dad. I don't like when he comes home like that. They don't make him feel good. And he's really good at what he does, but he comes home frustrated. And then I thought, hey, one day I'm going to have one of these job things. I wonder if management will be bad for me too. And so even at an early age, I remember thinking that kind of, I'm curious about that. Of course, it wasn't until years later when I actually went to college and thought, what interests me and what's worth doing that I, I started to think more about that. So you went into the, in the corporate world, uh, was consulting first or operations first? Consulting. I went to work at Bain & Company, okay. which was that year listed in a book that was written by a woman from Forbes magazine. She said, this is the number one job to have in America for a college grad. So I thought I should apply. And yeah. through a fluke of hiring process, or maybe I was a good interviewer because I had no experience, they hired me. And I thought, boy, I've, I've totally won the lottery here. This is going to be great. And for the next two years, I suffered and learned, but in a really hard way and got out with my life. But um, I, it's from there that I really decided I wanted to work with how to help companies become more effective and healthy because Bain was all about helping companies be smarter, even when they were dysfunctional and we never dealt with the dysfunctions. And that was really the problem most of our clients had. Yeah. I mean, Bain's generally known as a pretty good place to work, but I'm curious where, where you're on your assignments. Did you get to sort of meet this management that your, your father had spoken about? Oh yeah. And it was a terrible place to work. Now, Bain I, was I, a terrible I, place to work. Oh, it was horrific. But to their credit, people didn't understand 
organizational health then. Yeah. And they said, we're going to hire all these kids from good schools that worked really hard and did well. And we're going to run them into the ground and half of them or more will quit. And then we'll see what we got left and then we'll promote those. And so it, they, they weren't really trying to make it a great place to work. And that was interesting to me. But then when we go to our clients, we would try to give them advice about how to run their business. And I remember noticing when the clients like, but they don't even like each other and, and they argue and there's politics. And I remember saying to the people I worked with, hey, we should help them with that because the stuff we're doing isn't going to work. And they said, they don't pay us to do that. And I remember saying, one day I'm going to get paid for helping companies solve that problem because I actually think that's more fundamental than just the intellectual stuff. So, so how did you do that? Did you just get fed up and set up a shingle? Did you have an anchor client? Like how, how did the actual transition happen? Well, from Bain, I went to Oracle. Yeah. And and was also in a job that because there was no jobs in this field. It wasn't really yeah. a field. And I talked my way into a job. I heard an executive give a speech and I said, Hey, why don't you hire me? He talked about he wanted to make the organization the best in terms of employee engagement and satisfaction. And yeah. I said, Hire me. This is what I'll do for you. And they were like, What? And he goes, Okay, you got a job. So I I got into the field by just cold calling the senior executive way, 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 way above me in the food chain. And he oh, said, so you okay, weren't at the that. company pitching for this internally. You were outside the company. No, I was, I was in the company, but in a totally different department. I see. Okay. Got it. So I went to this senior executive who I didn't know. And I said, you should hire me and give me this job and I will do this for you. And he gave me that chance. And it was a mess. That was at Oracle, which was a crazy company at the time. Yeah. High growth. And yeah. And so then I went to, um, its competitor, which was like going from Darth Vader to Luke Skywalker. It was like a smaller company of nicer people. But, you know, I mean, and they're all companies. And, so, and I'm sure that Bain is a fine place to work now. But I went to this company called Sybase, where I became an executive in charge of organizational communication and development. And then Steve Jobs offered me a job to come run HR at Pixar. And I didn't want to do that. And then I got another job offer from a very um, well-known executive at another company. And I thought, wait a second. I want to run my own company. I had a team and I had a perspective. So that's when we launched the table group in 1997, thinking that we were just going to help local clients. I had no idea I would ever write a book or give a speech or do any or make tools. We just thought we were going to drive around the Bay Area and help companies get healthier. So you saw a lot of what not to do. Who were your inspirations or mentors around? Like who was the kind of early people on the what we should be doing? <laughs> You know, that's a really good question. Um, uh, you know, I met Jim Collins. Okay. No, no, Jerry Porras, his co-author first, who wrote yeah. the book. The first book they wrote was called Built to Last. Yeah. And so that was theoretically, and based on a lot of other companies, my first glimpse at the right way to do some things. But I think I really, really, really learned from seeing how many companies were dysfunctional. Um, I'd love to give you an example. I mean, and then I learned about Southwest Airlines before we ever started working with right. those. There were all these companies I had read about that were great. And, and did you think they were dysfunctional for the same reason? Like, what did you know how to fix it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <Okay. laughs> and so that's what I did, Bob. I was working with all, I was working at my third company and doing pro bono work with some startups. Yeah. And I was like, holy Toledo. It was focused on the CEO. And I said, this guy is failing because he's an ego guy. He doesn't even care about results. And I, I wasn't going to write a book. I thought, there's the problem. If you're a CEO who doesn't care about results, you fail. Then I thought, wait a second. The last CEO, he cared about results, but he failed because he wouldn't actually hold people accountable for doing things. He would let people get away with behaviors that weren't good for the company's results. He was afraid to step into that. Oh, wait, this guy 
didn't have those problems, but he was just afraid to make a decision about what was what was right and wrong. So I, I, I deconstructed a model, the five temptations of a CEO, but I wasn't going to write a book about it. I just shared it with people. And finally, somebody came to me and said, you better write a book about that because somebody else is going to. And I thought, okay, I'll write a book. <laughs> but I had no idea. I, I thought I would take it to Kinko's and hand it out to my friends and clients. And somehow it caught fire. And you have a, a copy of one of the earliest editions in your office. Yeah, I was going to say, we, we talked about this before the show, but apparently I have a collector's version. And I was telling the story that that my wife, when we were 20s, had, had given me this book and inscribed it. She, I don't know whether she saw you at a conference or they gave it away at a conference. She said, I really think you'll love this. And I think one day you're going to be a great CEO. And I, and I read it. I don't think I'd read a parable before. And I didn't put it all together until... 15 years later, we, I think we were in the five dysfunctions of the team. And I think I was like, huh, this is like a book I read before <laughs> and, and put it all together that, that that was your book. So most of your books, it's funny. People always tell me they read my whole book and my first book. And it was only an hour. So I was like, don't pat yourself on the back too much. So this is, they're not too long, but you know, books that are parables, I tend to just pick up and read them all because the, the, this, the story is engaging. How did you decide on a parable? This was probably one of the first parables I've ever read. So um, I, the main reason was I had purchased business books before and not finished them. Yeah. And I, and I thought, man, and I would really feel really bad for the author. And I'm thinking about this guy or this gal wrote these last four chapters that I'm not going to read and nobody else is reading. How depressing. To, right. Cause you're like, I got the point already. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought, how do I write a book that people will actually read? I mean, it had to be about something important, but I want, yeah. I didn't want them to skip any of it. So I thought I'll make it short. If you can't finish it from Chicago to LA on a flight, then it's too long. Right. And secondly, I wanted to make it so interesting that people wanted to keep turning the pages. And I remembered, I thought, you know, I was a screenwriter when I, in college, I took a screenwriting class slightly to the chagrin of my father. I was going to ask you because fiction, I decided to try to write my first parallel and it's totally different from nonfiction. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's a really different process. You know, that, that, that story that they talk about, you know, 20,000 hours of practice or something like that. Yeah. 10,000. Yeah. Or 10,000. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I'd been writing since I was a kid fiction just for fun. I never even had any idea that it would ever turn out to anything. And so I wrote five screenplays after college. And so when it came to write this book, I thought, oh, this is easy. I'm going to write dialogue and I'm going to provide just enough structure that people understand what's going on. But I loved it. And I didn't know that people would like it. But that's one of the things people loved about it. They said, well, I can get through this quickly. I like the story. I finish it. And it makes me want to learn to the end. It's funny because when I wrote my book, Elevate, with my publisher, Sourcebooks and Simple Truths, the whole thing of the, the series was these leadership books that were like an hour. People would say, I finished your book. And I'm like, yeah, like it's like an hour. Like it's, but it's some accomplishment that people... So their decision was to cut the Absolutely. price in half, cut the length in half, because they know that all the business books are, are repetitive. But but people feel accomplished, right? And then you could sell another book and then they can feel accomplished reading that. Well, and, and then I would just put a small section in the back that explained it, but because yeah. they saw it take place in the fiction, then I would just kind of show it to them. And you're right. People want to know they finished something. And, and you know, Ken Blanchard had written a fable and somebody else did. And I remember thinking, so I guess somebody does that. The Go-Giver is a fa yeah, famous one. Bob yeah, that's yeah. when I read that. Yeah. And um, I, the One Minute Manager was and things like that. And so I thought, I guess people do this. I, I tried to make mine slightly edgy. And in yeah. fact, the first one was a little more allegorical. Since then, I've gotten into 
really realistic. I like when people come to me and they say, I think you wrote that book about my company. And I'm like, no, I didn't know about your company. He goes, because that's exactly what happens in our meetings. And so I really wanted to make it edgy enough. And, uh, you know, the, the, the characters swear a little bit yeah. because people swear at work. And occasionally I get a message from somebody say, you shouldn't put that in there. And I don't have to go to, to the extreme to make them swear like some companies do. But I wanted people to go, this is real. These are not yeah. fable characters. It's not like, oh, and here comes the fox. And he says to the turtle. Which just makes the point that when they think it's about their company, it's like the, then the, the case that I'm making, like this exists everywhere, right? Right, right. And you know what's funny? Writing fables was hard for me. At first, I thought, are people going to buy into this? And Jim Collins, I talked to him. And I said, you know, I write fables and I write based on my experience working with companies. And I said, you do research, primary research. Yeah. And he said, it doesn't matter. Face validity is everything. If your readers and your clients say, this is exactly how it works and this makes sense, that's validity. And I was so glad that he did huh. that because I was kind of wondering like, is this valid? And he said, absolutely valid. So people like the book. They like the format. Your stuff starts taking off. Uh, few years later, I think you had your kind of first breakout book, The Five Dysfunctions of the Team. So yeah. how did, where did that framework then come about from, from the next set of work with all these dysfunctional companies? Yes. But one of the things, as you'll notice, it tracks very closely with yeah. the five dysfunctions, five temp because we wrote that book about CEOs. Yeah. And then we were like, whoa, these same principles sli applied slightly differently, apply to teams. And so that book, you know what's, you know what's interesting? Some of the people at my publisher at the time said, you shouldn't write a book about teams. There's enough books about teams. Yeah. It's every, every, everything that's been said has been, it could be said, has right. been said already. And yeah. that's the bit, the greatest selling book. And it still is. So we were glad that we didn't listen because we thought, I don't know, this is a little different. But so that came from, from the first book. It was an application toward teams. And I will tell you, Bob, I think that the biggest thing that happened to me early was I spoke at a leadership conference called um, the Global Leadership Summit at a church, a big evangelical church in Chicago called Willow Creek. And they invited me. They didn't know I was a Christian. I'm a Catholic. And they invited me because they heard about this book and they thought I should yeah. talk about that. Well, I, to this day, and I've spoken at that conference 10 times. I just spoke this past summer at it. That conference, more people came to know who I was because business people flocked to this conference. To this day, I think that a high percentage of the people who follow me heard me in huh. 2002 or something at that conference. And that's when that book took off. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Well, can you go a little bit around the five principles and sort of why the order matters there and the pyramid concept? Because I think that's the that's the key <laughs> that's the key message in in why that formula I think resonates with so many people. Sure. So I'll try to do this fast. At the bottom of the triangle or the pyramid is the foundation, which is trust, which is so obvious. But trust is one of the things that's lacking on so many teams, and it's what I call vulnerability based trust. And that is, yeah. can people be completely open about? not only their strengths, but their weaknesses. Can they admit when they're wrong? Can they build the kind of trust where you can sit down with them at a meeting or be with them in the office and you know they are never going to pretend to be something they're not or to cover up their mistakes or to to pretend they're smarter than you are or to that they're capable of saying, I like your idea better than mine. Are they trustworthy in that sense of vulnerability? This is the biggest thing in everything I work on is you've got to build trust with the people you work with. And that leads to the next thing, which is conflict. If you trust somebody, you can argue with them knowing that they have your back and you have theirs. You're not actually hurting the relationship. You're helping it because you just want to make the best decision. So conflict comes from trust. Without trust, conflict is politics. So we say build trust, learn to argue really well based on that trust. And then at the end of the argument, you'll actually commit to a decision based on really having heard one another. And even if you still disagree, you'll be able to say, okay, I'll support that because we argued. I I love the disagree and commit. Yeah. And that came from from Intel. You know, they used to say, if you can't disagree with one another, then you're not going to commit. But if if people debate something, they'll either get to a a real consensus or more importantly, they'll be able to make a decision even if people didn't agree and leave the room on the same page. Yeah. And the the key thing is they're, they're... discussing and arguing and stuff about ideas and they keep that at the ideal level not the personal level right this is right. The, adam grant talked about this like task conflict versus relationship conflict and you know what's interesting about that bob is that when you don't have task conflict to use his terms it eventually ferments into relationship conflict yeah. so you go to a church because churches i do a lot of work in churches and they're notorious for not liking conflict because they think it's mean which right. is not and so they don't have conflict and somebody says an idea and they don't like it, but they don't debate it. And they, and then over time they get frustrated with that person. And then they finally blow up and they go, Oh man, you're driving me crazy with all these stupid ideas. Yeah. Or, or the emperor has no clothes. Everyone thinks it's a horrible idea, but no one will say anything. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And they say, well, why didn't you tell me? And they're like, cause I wanted to be nice. <laughs> it's like, it's not nice to withhold your opinion and avoid a, a really healthy argument. Yeah. And so that's one of the biggest things. But I tell you, it's not limited to churches. The vast majority of companies have far too little good conflict. Because we we live in a society now that says disagreeing with somebody 
is inappropriate. Also the discomfort, you know, and not yes. physical, but, but, you know, just discomfort is threatening or, you know, if you're making me uncomfortable, it's threatening. And that, that narrative I, I'm sure is so detrimental to this work. Like this should be uncomfortable. Some of these things, these are tough topics. You can't be comfortable all the time and discuss a lot of these things. Yeah. Leadership is messy. Yeah. And when we get to meetings and that's one, that's where teams are teams, by the way, if you're talking about, if you're talking to Bill Belichick, so how do you know your team's good? It's like, well, do they play well when they get on the field? Right. And you say to somebody, how do you know you're a good teacher? Well, I want to see what you do in the classroom. How do I know if I'm a good surgeon? I want to see how you interact with the other doctors and nurses when you're operating on somebody. Well, the way you know if a team functions well in in any business is how they act during meetings, because that's really where they get stuff done, make decisions, argue, debate, all that. Well, if people think the job of being a football player, a surgeon, or a teacher is to be never to be uncomfortable, well, they're not going to do a good job. And if a leader thinks I'm going to go into this meeting and and I'm going to control it well, nobody's going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to be totally safe, that's the recipe for a really terrible meeting. But that is what a lot of people want. Yeah. So trust, conflict. Which leads to commitment. You come out of the room and you go, I will do what we agreed to. Because we argued about it. You listened to me. I listened to you. You're the leader and you broke the tie. Because I know that you heard me, I will support this decision. Unless it's immoral or unethical, people are capable of doing that. But if they didn't weigh in, which is conflict, then they don't buy in. They were heard, right? They got to be, I heard you, but sometimes we got to make a decision and it's four to one, right? That's the the way in to buy in or the, the, the disagree and then commit. So commitment is important because you got to know everybody is all in. That allows us to, to overcome the biggest challenge of teams, which is the next one, which is the unwillingness people have to hold each other accountable. Yeah. So it's one thing, Bob, as you said, ideological conflict. I disagree with your idea. Let's debate. Then we get to the hardest one, which is accountability, which is when you turn to somebody and you say, I think you need to work a little harder on this. I think what you're doing is not enough. And I love the sports analogy when the, player goes to the guy in the huddle and goes, dude, you have to block that guy. Yeah. <laughs> it just is what it is. Right. Yeah. Right. And it got in the, in the military, you don't go like, Hey, cover me. You don't go, well, if you don't, I'm going to tell the corporal. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> it's like, you've got to cover me. And so we want that in every team. You want peers to hold each other accountable. Yeah. And what's really interesting, and we've seen this in our organization, um, because own it, actually, we used to have a core value of, of accountability. And then we actually realized there was a bug in that core value because some people wanted to be accountable for what they could control. And own it was different, right? Own yes. it was, I take the good, the bad, and it's mine. And I'm not just going to tell you I did these four things and it went off the tracks. And so not not my fault. But we found that some of our m- most accountable people are shitty at holding other people accountable. Like they're, they're like the buck stops with me, whatever, but they're not good at passing that down. No. And that, and (laughs) and frankly, you have to start by saying, you know, it's an act of love to hold people accountable. Yeah. And if you don't care enough, love your teammates enough, love the organization. Because if you're an owner, you have to love everyone. Like, I mean, if you own it, if you don't love them enough to go have a difficult conversation about their performance, which is ultimately in their best interest and the organization's, at the end of the day, that's actually a function of selfishness. Yeah. And so accountability is not like, I will do what I'm required to do and no more. It's actually, no, I will take the risk of when I see somebody else who needs to be held accountable. I will step into that and I will welcome it if somebody else holds me accountable too. Right. Exactly. This is, we're marching down the field and 
tell me what I got to do. We're trying to get the ball in the end zone. Yeah. And we have a, uh, we just tell people that if you're not doing that, then you're not caring enough about the team. And what's going to happen if we don't hold each other accountable is it's going to inhibit us in the fifth area, which is the accomplishment of results. So the fifth dysfunction of a team is the inattention to results. And people will say, well, I have, I'm a results-oriented guy. Look, at I do my stuff, or I, I do this too. Lady will say, and, and this, but it's like, no, 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 no. It's not your results. It's the, the whole team's results. Yeah. We're not a golf team. <laughs> right. We're a basketball team. Uh, managers for years, and I think that remote work sort of lay this naked a little bit. They just were managing inputs, not outcomes. Like I, you know, Jim was here eight hours, and and Sally was only here five hours. So Jim must be working harder. And so we've been a fully remote team for 15, 16 years now. And before COVID, all of my friends would look at me like I was this estranged, whatever, and she has like. I don't understand how, how do you know what these people are doing? How do you know whatever, like how, how do you know any work's getting done? And I remember saying like, look, we're a client service business. We've organized our team that everyone has about the same amount of work. So they have five accounts and we look at the performance of the account. It's in marketing. Like, how's it doing? Cause the client happy. So is the program hitting its numerical goals, which is what the clients want. And are they happy? And are they giving us kind of high scores? And if somehow this person on this team has five accounts that are all beating their goals and their clients are giving them top scores, I'm really not worried about how they're working or their hours or otherwise. Like, in fact, I, I think we've had, as we've grown, we've had some problems where people are going through the, what do I have to do? What do I have to deliver? They're going through the checklist and they're forgetting about the the results. So I, I used to always say to people, I don't, I don't understand. Like we've set up the right system. Like if you have the right scorecard, if you have the right metric, like you should know if they're getting results or not. Yeah. I love it. It's culture versus policy. Yeah. I think when you, when you run a company by policy, you get the the minimum from people, but when you run it by behavior and culture, people go above and beyond and they do things that drive those numbers higher than you could have ever predicted. So I, you, you were right to think that was nuts, but that's kind of how we go to school. You know, <laughs> I think we teach people like, well, what is it? Is the policy fair? And culture just covers so much more than rules. I said, you can make 500 guidelines out of three or four values or culture. And my favorite, my favorite leader is Gary Ridge, who ran WD-40 for years always uh-huh. said that you know anyone at our organization that makes a decision in service of one of more of our values core values is safe and, and right. that, yeah i was like that's that means he really believes in those values as behaviors not wall art right southwest airlines was like that for years they and when people talk about empowering their employees empowering them means give them their guide rails yeah. the guardrails or the guidelines and these are the behaviors that we think are good Anything you do within those is going to be great. And, and Nordstrom was famous for this. They told people, listen, love on your customers. We don't care what you have to do. And they told stories about the guy who, or I mean, the woman who a guy brought in a tire and said, this building used to be a, a tire store. And now it's this. And you said, we'll return anything. I want to return this tire. And she did. She t- gave him money back for his tire. Now that sounds ridiculous, but they were saying like, but the PR we would value rather- of that was probably worth it, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I think that one of the things that healthy organizations do is they really understand culture and behavior, and that trumps. And as Jim Collins said, or Peter Drucker, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. And Southwest has all these examples of employees taking people home and doing all this stuff and, and, and United's, you know, videoing people are videoing as they're dragging a guy off the 
plane and bludgeoning him because they don't want to give him $800 more. And I said, like, neither of them had a manual that told them how to deal with that situation. It's just that Southwest values were real and operationalized. And it's different for for a lot of these other airlines. But I want I wanted to share one story to go back because our, our team, you know, a lot of our leadership team at Acceleration Partners kind of during my tenure had really grown up in the business. And we sort of, uh, you know, adapted the five dysfunction kind of process, particularly we had for years, two day offsites. And we really look forward to these. And we went, you know, we went offsite and this, you know, we we fought like brothers and sisters, like we, you know, there's the, the yelling and scream, but it was always task conflict. And obviously, right. as you, you get up, you have more outside leaders, you know, coming in. We hadn't had someone in a year. And there was a, there was a moment in a meeting where someone got frustrated with someone who was new. And I think it was their first meeting. And they took a shot at someone else. And everyone else sort of stopped. And, you know, afterwards, you know, kind of went aside and said something. And multiple people kind of pulled people aside. And they're like, yeah, that's just not. And I realized we had really, really oriented around that principle and kind of, you know, went to the person and said to them, like, that's that's not okay. You know, the, and and they were pretty surprised. And because I think it was pretty normal in the environments that we came from. But but it just was so interesting how everyone just knew immediately that that had broken the unspoken barrier between sort of task and relationship conflict. And what happened? Did that person receive it and change their behavior afterward? Yeah, I think they did, um, but I think they they were a little surprised by it. And again, they probably were in rooms for five or ten years where that was not the norm, and said, "Look, the culture is different everywhere." And we were like, "But we just don't we don't do that. Like that's <laughs> that is a hard and fast rule here." I love it, Bob. I have this thing we talk about called the conflict continuum. Yeah, and and on one end of the continuum is what we call artificial harmony, which means nobody ever, everybody's like, "Yay, great, okay, yeah. good idea." And the other end is like mean, awful, just people are at each other's throats all the time. Okay. Right. Now there's far more. I mean, far, 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 far more companies that are near artificial harmony. <laughs> so the idea is, if you're going down, this, is known for that. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Canada. Um, the South at certain yeah. places, you know, and, and God bless them. But it's not I mean, a New I, York problem. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> but the West Coast is like that. West Coast is like that. Yeah. You know, I remember the cartoon I saw years ago that showed a guy on the West Coast who said, good morning to somebody, but the bubble showed what he was really thinking. And it said, screw you. Yeah. <laughs> and then it showed a guy in New York saying, screw you. And the bubble said, good morning. <laughs> you know, that's just how they interact with each other. So, so in this conflict continuum, it goes from artificial harmony, which is no conflict, to a little bit of productive conflict, a little bit more, and it goes down this thing. And it, right in the middle, it goes from productive, really productive, to slightly destructive. It steps over the line. And then more destructive, more destructive, until you get to the worst part, hell. Okay. Yeah. Well, the point I want to make is, based on your story, is if it doesn't occasionally step over the line... You don't, you don't know where the line is, yeah. Exactly. And so when that guy does something, you go, whoa, 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 that went too far. That's actually good because now the whole team can go, oh, 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 yeah, that got destructive. And they go, oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. I didn't understand. That's okay. Let's have the courage to just step back over that line and have all the good. Con if you're never willing to let it go over the line, you will never come close to the line. But the line that really should never be broken, and this goes into feedback, and I talked about this in Elevate Your Team, is, is keeping it about the ideas, not the person. You know, as soon as you go into... You know, I, I've talked to people five to 10 years later, you know, where a characteristic of theirs was insulted. You know, you're not strategic, you're not funny, you're not, and they're not over that stuff five or 10 years later right. versus the strategy that you delivered was subpar on that, or that was an ill-timed 
joke. So I, to some people who haven't been in these healthy kind of productive environments, I'm not sure that they see like how important that distinction on was. You can call anyone's idea stupid. You just can't call them stupid. Right. But if somebody does, it's a chance to reinforce that, right. that culture and say, I'm not upset for you for pushing, but you went too far and you need to apologize. And, and if they trust each other, people, the person that got hurt will go, man, I, that hurt me. And the other yeah. person will go, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I guess what it is, it's like in any marriage, in any relationship, you are going to step over the line sometimes. The question that's a is- That's a great point. They're like, no, it, that's important to help reinforce where the line is. Right, right. So, because otherwise you will, you'll avoid even getting close to there. So how do you suggest a, a new leader or a leader of a new team kind of, what are some smaller things they can do to sort of start building that into their team and let them know, hey, look, this is a- we're about open, constructive dialogue. You mean as opposed to not going there? Right, exactly. It's easy, right. As, as a team, how do you sort of model and get people having these hard conversations and doing, yeah, it, assuming this team is, the problem of this team is less that they're overly obnoxious and more that they're all quiet and not engaged. Which yeah. is far more <laughs> common, by the way, far more common. Yeah, so I would say the first thing you do is you build trust. You get them to really get comfortable being vulnerable. And vulnerable, you know what, the, the Latin root of the word vulnerable is wound. Hmm. We all have wounds. And I don't, this is not a, I'm not a touchy feely guy, by the way. Yeah. I, I don't think, I don't want people to hug each other and roll around on the floor. I mean, hugging is fine, but not Trust because falls. you're in a team building. Yeah. Actually. Exactly. That's <laughs> that crap. So what we do is we, when we work with a team, we say, tell us this, just tell us where you grew up, how many kids were in your family and what was the hardest challenge of your childhood, not your inner childhood. And we do, it takes 10 minutes and suddenly people are looking at each other. I did this with a team recently and I always say the same thing. How many of you learned something new and every hand goes up? I had no idea that happened to you when you were a kid. I had no idea you, you faced that. And suddenly they're like going, oh, wow. You mean sharing something about who I am actually brings us closer together and makes me feel better. Oh, we can be vulnerable. Then we use a tool. For years, we used the Myers-Briggs. Now we have a new tool called the Working Genius, which is faster and more applied to work. Then somebody holds up a piece of paper and says, hey, look, it, I'm really good at these two things. And yeah. I suck at these two things. And I'm okay at these two things. And people go, so you know you suck at those things? And like, oh yeah, it's right here. Of course I do. So we can call you on that? That's vulnerability. People are like, oh yeah, I'm horrible at some things. And you guys know that. I always screw it up when I'm, in, when I'm doing it. Let's talk about that. Well, suddenly people are not afraid to actually give each other hard feedback, but it doesn't even feel hard. It feels like acknowledging something they want to know. And so we teach them that vulnerability is actually liberating, not fearful. Now, occasionally, there's a guy on the team or a gal on the team that can't be vulnerable in there and they don't know how to do it. 99.8% of the time, everybody on the team can do it and they're relieved by it and it changes the entire tenor of the team. Yeah, and I, I, a couple of stories around that. One, I think first, the, the and I probably agree with this, like the leader sets the tone for vulnerability, right? Like in anything. I I, I had a guy and you probably do something similar to this, but in an offset, he did this exercise years ago. He said... Tell us something about you. you wouldn't know your childhood, right? And he started and he went around in the circle, you know, and then everyone went. And then he was, we're going to do another round. And the second time he was like, my dad was an alcoholic and beat me and whatever. It's something like that. And the stories, boom, went to level three. And so his point was, look, they are going to they're going to follow 
the path of the the leader. <laughs> we had a guy once in this exercise said, "Oh, when I sometimes they do it as a humble brag, which is so bad." It's like, "Well, uh, the hardest thing about my childhood is I sailed around the world on my own once. That was really hard." <laughs> it was yeah. like, "Dude, that's not what we're talking about here." But when the leader does something real, and they're not again, it's not performative. Everybody else goes, "Okay, so you are a person with challenges as well." You're right. It opens up the rest of the team. And then when we do working genius, we want the leader to say. These are my geniuses. These are my frustrations. And when the leader says, yeah, I know I suck at a few things, then everybody else is like, oh, we're allowed to suck at something. It's not an excuse, but it's an acknowledgement and it changes everything. The leader has to go first. Has to go. And these things run deep. I I remember being in an offsite years ago where there were some exercises around vulnerability and people were sent kind of from different groups and I had organized it. And I reached out to the leader after and I said, look, some people were really vulnerable in this. And this this person on your team just took every chance to be superficial. Uh, and I just, I'm, I'm worried about this because other people were really modeling it. And I, I they were just pretending everything's great. And I, I sense that there is something deeper there. Like I've done this enough that it just was not meeting the other people where they are. And they were like, thanks and whatever. And, and actually... And that person had some struggles kind of early on. And I think a year or two later, there was opportunities where we were doing TED Talks in the company or otherwise, and something went on. And this person told the story that I think was the real the story about something that was going on, family, like deep, you know, story. And it and and it changed their relationship. It changed a lot oh. of things. But but I it was interesting because I the feeling I had that there was this false positivity was i think an overreaction to this pretty horrible situation and so like this this is the stuff that people bring to work every day and sometimes the reason why they need to talk about it is because they don't even realize how much it's driving their behavior you know it's so funny how many people in our in the, in our own company and in clients will actually exercise vulnerability to a greater degree in those discussions and then go home and realize i need to bring this into my family too yeah Somebody, I can't remember who said this recently, but I, I read this in a book or someplace where somebody said, actually, work is the best place for personal development because we spend more time in yeah. a more profound setting with these people. And it's a wonderful laboratory for improving ourselves and giving each other feedback that we can take home. Because my wife and I don't sit around for eight hours a day co-working. Yeah. we I, And when you do the zone of genius or you do the why stuff or you have these sort of epiphanies at work... They're totally, you go home. My my wife and I did the why stuff with uh, uh, years ago. And like, we use it all the time at home. We use it at work. And, and it's like, please stop making this better. And, and like, and this to me is like, if you can, if you can have the type of organization that can do this work, I think you're going to just make more productive and better human beings. So you will get a benefit from that, but there'll be benefits far outside of that. And, you know, it goes back to what you said before. So my dad came home from work frustrated. It was a very dysfunctional company. I found out later, you know, as I got older and work did not make him a better father and a better husband. He was a good father and a good husband, but it was in spite of the fact that work made him worse. Yeah. But imagine when work makes you better and you say, my dad or my mom is a better spouse and a better parent because of what happens at work. I mean, work can become a great tool for improving society and le- and leaders, I think leaders can have yeah. a multiplicative effect. Or like, I, you know, I learned how to have a tough conversation at work. I'm going to go try that with my spouse or with my kid. Or I learned that I, I got some good feedback today, and I listened to it around. 
oh, I can see that I'm doing this with my son. You know, the same thing that my employees complaining about. Yeah, to me, that is the, I think if leaders would lean into how, how do we help make our people better overall, help them holistically build their capacity, you know, they become better mother, fathers, brothers, sons, daughters outside of work. And that matters. It matters at the end of the day, at the end of our life. Um, and, you know, with my faith, that's the purpose of being a leader. But it also, it's okay to know that when you do that, people's performance goes through the roof. Yeah, When they're like, you actually care about me as a person. I'm going to care about our customers more because I care about you more. And I'm going to hold you accountable. And I'm going to let you hold me accountable. Everything improves. But you don't do it just for the bottom line. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And it just so happens that it serves the bottom line. Yeah. we So years ago, I started and I ended up building out, helping our employees are developing, figure out their personal core values. I was on a call for half an hour this morning. We finished this woman's, she was like, these are me. This is like me across all of my life. And people are like, why the person? I'm like, because you can't, I think if you believe in Jim Collins level four or five leadership, we can have all kinds of things about how leaders behave here or what they do or otherwise, but you can't become a really great leader unless you're going to do that authentically from the place for whom you are. And this person was like, this is how I lead. This is who I am. This is this is who I am outside of work. Like, and I, I just think that's so cool for them to get those tools and realize, like, look, the leader that we want you to be is totally authentic. Like, just make sure you understand who you are and why you do these things so that you can explain it to your team. And this person was actually going to go right up for their team about, look, these are my core values, and this is what happens when the line is crossed. Like this person deeply believes that people should. I'll, you know, take this full circle. This deeply believes that people should be heard and share their ideas or otherwise. If I went into it with that person, I could tell you 99 out of 100 times it's because they were probably not heard as a child, right? And and so that's why it's so important to them. And so they're actually going to go to their team and like, look, when you cut off someone or you don't let them speak or otherwise, like it doesn't work on my team. So it comes full circle, just like your story of, you know, your father and how do I stop this from happening? You know, the, the working genius tool that we put together is really two things in one. And I came up with it by accident or by the grace of God three years ago. In my own frustration at work, somebody said, why are you like that? And I said, I don't know, but I want to figure it out because I would get happy and I'd be frustrated. I'd be happy and I'd be frustrated. I thought, this doesn't make any sense. So we figured out there's different kinds of work and some of them frustrate us. Some of us bring us joy and energy. Well, the funny thing was we couldn't believe how many people applied that far outside of their jobs. Yeah. And then I realized it changed my marriage. And like one guy wrote to us and said, I kind of thought my wife didn't like me. And he goes, I really did. And our anniversary, we both did the working genius. And he goes, I realized I have the genius of invention, which is the idea that loves to come up with new ideas. She has a genius of discernment, which is like evaluating ideas. So every time he'd come up with an idea in her love for him, she would say, okay, this part of it won't work. This part will, but this part of it won't, you got to work on. And she was like, why is he, he thought she was like crushing his dreams. And when they did the working genius, she said, oh no, I think that's how I love you is I give you feedback. And he was like, I thought you didn't like me. Yeah. <laughs> and once you understand that, no, I'm wired to do this, you give grace and you say, oh, I love that you do that. I don't have to interpret it in the wrong way. And when people on a team do that, what used to seem like criticism now becomes an understanding of what their weaknesses and strengths are and helping them. It's it's amazing. Right. It's all I tell you, whether you do Myers Briggs or Y or Colby or Strength Finders or Zona Juice, first of all, you'll start to see a ton of overlap. But you're learning yes. love languages. And the more I understand your scores across things and coaching someone, and they're like, I am fighting like crazy with Pat. I'm like, 
remind me what his stuff is. What's your stuff? Like these things. And I'm like, and you can just see where it is, like where the conflict is. Yeah. St. Francis of Assisi said, seek to understand more than to be understood. And the more we understand somebody, the more we give them grace. And I loved in college, I, I learned something. I think it's one of the few like specific things I learned in college that I remember like a very specific, I remember the supply and demand curves because I studied economics. That's yeah. about it. But in psychology, I took a class and we learned something called the fundamental attribution error. Yeah. And the fundamental attribution error is just, Bob, if you do something that I think is annoying, I will make an attribution that that's a character flaw of yours. Yeah. But it's a virtue of mine. Yeah. Right. But if I do something that I find annoying, I mean, that you find annoying, I attribute it to my environment. So like if a guy cuts me off in traffic, my first reaction is, what a jerk. He is rude. He is selfish. I bet he's like that all the time. What a jerk. I hope I come alongside him in traffic. I can give him a scowl. If I cut somebody off in traffic, I'm like, oh, I'm late. I'm having a tough day. I'm sorry. I was confused about where I was going to go. I know my circumstances. So I'm going to give myself the benefit of the doubt. I assume everybody else acts with intention. Well, this is a way to break down a society, a company, a team, anybody. So the more we understand why a person acts the way they do, the more we're going to go, oh, you're not a jerk. You just don't have a lot of enablement or you're yeah. you're not a feeler. And so you're just going to say something a little more blunt. than. I, so it's a wonderful thing. And, and if you've been in these discussions, if you've been in deep, vulnerable discussions and you, you're comfortable with this stuff, as I've done over and over again, or really pull someone aside and be like, Pat, like, what is going on? And I actually, I know their Colby score and I've done their why with them and all this stuff. It's really deep stuff for them. So the example I talk a lot about in my book, and it came up in sort of the core values or the why stuff is that people who have fundamental why or core value of trust, why do they have that why? Nine times out of 10, and I could I learned this from the why questions, but it'd say to them, look, I'm, I'm Pat, I'm not going to ask you what the story is, but I just, trust has come up a lot in a lot of these assessments and stuff. And like, was there a violation of trust in your childhood or in formative years otherwise? And yeah, yes will, or no, you don't have to go into it all. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and they don't even have to answer, like tears start welling in their eye and otherwise. And, and so, okay, so trust is really important to you. Well, now if we look at your 360 feedback, when we look at stuff. And I remember this, we were in one of these sessions. We said, okay, so the people on your team who don't know this yet, right? They're five minutes late to a meeting. They missed a deadline or otherwise, like, how does that sort of play out? And and really was, they were in jail, the key was thrown out and they were never getting out and they didn't know it. Because to <laughs> this person, those were signs that this is someone who can't be trusted. And their life is all about a small circle of friends and figuring out if people can be trusted or otherwise. So wasn't super productive on their team. When it became productive was when they impacted their team and said, look, trust is really important to me. Like I give it, I keep tight team. Like here are the things that diminish trust with me as a leader. And they're really hard to recover from, like totally changed the entire dynamic with their team. You know, Bob, it's, it's like, it's worth asking this question. Can you imagine doing business without that? I mean, when we don't have that level of understanding and insight, people are just left to they're behaving without very much self-awareness and other people right. are value. You're going up that ladder of inference and everybody's way off of the truth. Right. It's like you said, like people are like, I, I came five minutes left to the lead, freaking out. You come to five minutes late to my meeting, but you figured out a better way. Like I'm all good with it. Like I don't, right. you come in, you're like, solve the problem. But to that person, it's like science. And, and again, why different situations sort of play out differently. But we talked about the zone of genius a few times. I don't want to miss it. So can you walk through the the archetypes of that? Of working genius? Yeah, the, sorry, working genius, yes. 
I think a great question is how is this different than the others? Because I love them all. I'm a junkie for these things. Yeah. And but, they all have all similarities, right? Yeah. Yes. So. And, and it's good to understand the context of why some are better for certain things than others. Working genius is seriously about what you like to do in the yeah. context of work. So Myers-Briggs is like what your preferences are in life and who you are and your personality. And I love it. This it. gets down to then how do you, what's the application of that in the work environment? Exactly. Yeah. And it's a 12 minute assessment that people look at and they go, oh yeah, that project I love, that one I love. Oh, no wonder we sucked at that. That's why we failed because I'm yeah. terrible at that. And you know, I the first job I took out of college, I, I didn't succeed at. I survived, but I didn't succeed. And now I look back for 30 years, I thought, well, I was just lazy or stupid. And I look back and I realized it was absolutely working in my worst areas of genius. Yeah. So the six types of working genius go like this. The first one, which happens at 50,000 feet, we like to look at altitude, is the genius of wonder. There are people that God gave them a natural gift of just like pondering things and noticing things and asking questions like, hey, why is that the way it is? What's going on here? Is that really the best we can do? I wonder if our customers would be happier with something else. Every business needs this, but very few people get praised or encouraged to use this. Correct. And those people probably suck at implementing those things. Oftentimes. Yeah. And, and that's okay <laughs> if they know that. Right. Okay. But it's not an excuse. They still have to implement sometimes. But if they have a job that's pure implementation and doesn't allow yeah. them to wonder, misery. Yeah. Yeah. So the next genius comes after that, which is a little bit lower in altitude, which is invention. So somebody wonders and says, I bet there's a better way. And the inventor, this is one of mine, goes, let me figure it out. And don't give me any more context. Give me a whiteboard and a little bit of time, and I'll come up with an idea out of nothing. That's just a unique genius that some people have. Well, one man's trash is another man's treasure or a woman. I know people that would hate a job where they'd have to come. And I say to them, hey, yeah. You come up with an idea. They're like, no, please don't make me. Whereas if you came to me all day, Bob, and said, hey, Pat, I'd like, I need a new idea around this. I'd be like, okay, I'll keep yeah, going. Yeah, I'm your idea guy. And so that stresses some people out, right? They want, right. Yeah, that gets probably to the next one, which is taking the idea and figuring out how to make it happen. Right. Well, actually, just before making it happen, somebody has to evaluate and decide whether it's a good idea or not. Yeah. And that's the genius of discernment. Okay. And this is about people that have gut feel, instinct, intuition, pattern recognition, and they can look at a situation and go, I've seen this movie before, or I'm pretty sure that that's the right idea. That one's not the right idea. It's not based on data. It's not based on expertise. It's just, there are people in the world that have great judgment, but it, and it's very real. And we all know them. There's a woman in our office named Tracy. She edits all my books, but she does, she was our first CFO and everything else. Every time we have a decision to make, whether it's at the office or at my, at home, my wife or the people at work say, ask Tracy. Because she'll look at it and go, yeah, I don't think that'll work. And we know there's something there. She looks at my book and she goes, this character doesn't make sense. I don't go, prove it. I go, okay, if it doesn't make sense to Tracy, I got to figure this out. So invention leads to discernment. Now, yeah. once the discerner says this is good, then comes the taking action. And that's the genius of galvanizing. Mm. That's the person who loves to rally the troops, get people organized, push them, say, let's go, let's drop what we're doing and work on this instead. It's a genius some people have. I don't. For 20 years, Bob, I was galvanizing every day at my company and it would make me grumpy. I'd come to work excited. By 11 o'clock, I'd be like, crap, why am I Do doing You want to be in the R&D lab. R &D lab. Exactly. Yeah. And so I found a person who had the genius of galvanizing. And I said, you're the chief galvanizing officer. And they said, what do you mean? I'm not old enough to do that. I said, no, it's a gift. At our meetings, you're going to get up in front of people and you're going to remind people what we're doing and what's going on. And you're going to help me do that. Now, I'm still responsible for making it happen as the CEO. But why not let this guy or this gal use their geniuses? I don't have to do all of that. 
And it made my productivity and and, uh, satisfaction go up and his at the same time. Changed our company. After galvanizing, somebody has to come alongside and say, yes, I'll, I'll help. There are human beings in the world, and I'm not one of them, who wake up every day who love to be asked for help. They yeah. naturally say, yes, I will do what you need me to do because I love seeing other people. I love enabling other people to do something that they want to do. And when you tell me you have a need, I get joy and energy out of filling that need. These people are glue on a team. They are so valuable. They usually don't even think it's a genius. They think they're just nice. And it's actually a genius to wake up and go, I love to help people realize their dreams. But that's not quite enough. The last one is the genius of tenacity, which is the people who just love to finish things. They're going to plow through a wall and overcome obstacles and check things off just to say, yes, it's done. I have none of that. So I've read, <laughs> written 13 books. I would have written zero if people without with tenacity hadn't been around me that made me finish. You probably have started 50 books. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and I'll be halfway through a book and I'll be moving on to my next one. And my editor will come along with, and she'll go, no, 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 no. You know, get back in the room. You're not done yet. And so the, the beauty of all this is we all need one another. And people look at their report and they'll go, well, crap. We had a guy that went into it for a performance review. He thought he might get fired. He, did, he knew he was going to get a bad review. And he did the working genius. So he handed it to his manager and said, could you look at this before we talk? And the guy looked at it and said, well, crap, you're in the wrong job. This is a horrible job for you. He goes, I know. And he goes, we have this other job over here that pays more. You'd be great at that. Okay, we're going to put you in that job. He said he got promoted instead of fired because they looked at him and they said, you're, you're a cultural fit. You just are in the wrong seat on the bus. Yeah. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And, and, and any of these things, any strength kind of overused becomes a weakness, right? So you could easily see what what I could I could tell what it would frustrate or where all of these things become a problem. So like the contributor tends to give way too much of themselves until they have no energy. Exactly. I as an inventor, I go to every meeting and I want to invent. And sometimes it's the day before something's getting launched, and I go, yeah. "Hey, I have an idea." And now my staff can go, "No, you don't. <laughs> You'll keep that idea to yourself. Invention phase is over. You've hit your quota for the day." Yeah. Yeah. And they can say that without saying, "Man, you're annoying me." They're they're just saying, "Hey, you're using your your gift right. in the wrong place. We need you to do this other stuff right now." So you talked about people having what are your geniuses and what are the opposite? But do they fall in that linear line or can you sort of cherry pick from different orders? Well, they they don't fall in that line. Like mine go right together. I'm an inventor discerner. So I have yeah, the I would actually think like those were the ones that resonated with me. Like that's, yeah. 
Yeah. Most podcast hosts I talk to who are <laughs> authors, we have the same one because we love new ideas and we're good at curating and evaluating. And we're like, I think my audience would like hearing about this. That's discernment. Yeah. So invention and discernment. But so mine go right together. But there are people out there that have wonder at the farthest end of the scale, like they love to wonder. And then they have tenacity, which they, so they hmm. live at 50,000 feet and at five feet landing the plane. And it's really hard for them. And I always tell them, you got to do them separately. Because when you try to do them at the same time, you get altitude sickness. You're constantly going, I wonder if we should do this. Oh my gosh, we got to get it done. I wonder if we should do this. And when you talk to a person with that profile, because everybody has two geniuses, they'll say like, yes, I have real conflict and angst because I'm trying to do two very, very, very different things at the same time. So they don't go in order. Sometimes they're quite separate. Sometimes they're not. And on the report that people get, there's a, there's a description of every pairing. Like you and I are called the discriminating ideators. And other people are called the loyal finishers. And everybody loves their own thing. And we got to celebrate everybody for what they are best at. So the book, which outlines us the six types of working genius, we'll, we'll link to that. But was that not a parable? You know, it 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 had some elements, elements of, of a parable. Of but it wasn't company. the normal full parable. Yeah. There was, there was a few more elements. I always try to draw on things I understand. Yeah. But this one... I mean, I didn't start a marketing company. I started another kind of company. But yeah, I, I, I was kind of writing about my own frustration in my jobs throughout the years. But I would say it's 10% that, 90% fiction. All right. So everyone can, we'll, we'll provide a link to that. And there's, I assume there's an assessment on the website too, right? Yeah. At workinggenius.com, the 10-minute assessment is there. All right. So we'll, we'll include that. So I want to shift... Um, Let's talk a little bit about uh, you're out you're out in the uh, on the West Coast, um, you know, and and a lot of what goes on in Silicon Valley is is probably diametrically opposed <laughs> to a, a lot of your work. And uh, you know, I've read stuff in the past. You've talked about skepticism towards companies kind of focusing on the luxurious office and amenities, and this was definitely the hallmark of almost every high growth company. Uh, if you didn't have ping pong and a barista, you couldn't or yoga class, you couldn't <laughs> hire anyone. Um, they were unprofitable, and I think those companies are struggling now. And and I like the term I've heard. It's there's a perk session now, right? All the stuff's being taken back. So, but there's always some new trend. So so now that perks and amenities are 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 less common due to remote work, what what do you think will take its place as the trendy? We we know what actually makes a difference in the quality of your workplace and otherwise some of the stuff you talk about. But I'm curious, what do you think will take place as the trendy differentiator? Well, I think the one that we're actually cycling through is people thought, and this is partly because of COVID, but partly because people are kind of lazy. I mean, not yeah. everybody, but we all have a lazy streak. And that's like, oh, you don't have to come to work. Yeah. You know, and it should be no, though, if the work requires us to be together, we should do it that way. It shouldn't be like a perk. Hey, we, that's like saying, hey, if you don't want to do your work well, you cannot. Because if you need to be with your team, you should be with your team. And there are certain jobs that lend themselves to slightly more remote work. I get it. But for a long time, companies were trying to recruit people saying, you can go, you can live in Aspen and go skiing every day and work here. And it's like, really, is that the kind of employee they, you want? Their to HR know? departments told them that like, that meant they were going to have to, you know, sign up to be a Colorado employer. <laughs> a lot of yeah, other, exactly. Other, yeah. But but it's interesting that you say that because I, in the, look, we've been remote for 15 years. It was a huge competitive advantage. COVID was a huge disadvantage for us because the way that we worked and how we worked and how we made that all work, we were very thoughtful about. And then after right. COVID, everyone's like, you can work remotely. And what they didn't realize was our whole team's in California in an office, but you can work remotely from Pennsylvania. And that's like a, and now the kind of pretenders are all taking it back or or otherwise. So it, for a while, it actually hurt us because 
people were telling people the same thing, but it didn't mean the same thing. But it's been surprising to me is how many CEOs are playing the power. I've said this time, playing power games. You must come back to the office because I'm telling you, rather than go into, look, when a client coming into the, if I'm an investment bank, when a client's coming into the office for a $100 million IPO pitch, we are not going to do that on Zoom. Like, that's not who we are, right? That's a different message than, I just don't know why more people aren't talking about which aspects of work and and their business or otherwise necessitate having people together or not having together. They're kind of using the the power card. Right. It gets back to what we talked about before of culture versus policy. Yeah. So the culture should be excellence. Now, so I wrote a book called The Ideal Team Player years ago, which which yeah. is a sequel kind of to uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team because it's like the five dysfunctions of a team is how to take your team and make it better. The ideal team player is like, here's the values you should look for. And it's it's very simple. It's humble, hungry, and smart. So yeah. if a person is humble, they're not ego-driven, they're about the team. They're hungry, they really want to work hard, and they're interpersonally smart. Well, hell, they're going to make good decisions about when they need to be at work. You might need to give them a little guidance, but they're not going to try to avoid it just to avoid it. So if you're hiring the right kind of people, the policy is less important than, than the idea of like, what's the right thing to do for my team and for the clients and everybody else? So we've been a, a company for 27 years, although we kind of restarted three years ago. But I've always had a policy like, if you need to be at home or you need to go do this, yeah. do it. And you know what happens? People actually overperform. They over-index on serving the organization because they know they have the freedom to take care of their families. And that's better than a policy that says you have to be here from this hour to this hour because then people just leave like Fred Flintstone, you know, sliding down the dinosaur exactly when they can leave. So, yeah, they don't understand the why. And frankly, I think leaders have been really wussy on this and they just haven't since COVID. They haven't put a stake in the ground and said, look, we want to be an in-person company or we want to do this or we want to be a company of flexibility. Someone asked me on a thing they're asking for advice because I wrote a book on hybrid and they said, look, I have someone on my team that just wants to do their job and not come to anything and work from home. And they do good work, but they just want to be kind of like totally non-engaged. And I was like, I can't, that's not right. Or what kind of culture do you want? Like, do you want that to be like, do you want a whole bunch of people that can do that? Is that, even though they do good work, is that not the type of company you want to build? And you need to say that I was like, you, you kind of need to make that choice. I think people are looking for people to say it's right or wrong or better or worse. And I think people just need to decide what kind of company they want to have and then support it. Exactly. And this whole idea of being inclusive, if you're inclusive of everyone, like regardless of their of their preferences around work and their culture and their attitude, then you, ha- you don't have a culture. Right. If you're trying to be everything to everyone, you'll be nothing to no one, right? Exactly. And so if that person goes, I really want to be anonymous and just do my work, it's like, hey, dude, you know something? That's fine. But that's not going to work here. But there are places, and I'll give you a great recommendation, as yeah. long as you you know there's a place where that fits for you. So it's up to you. It's I'm not rejecting you or judging you as a person. I'm just saying that we have a culture and you will be happier and we will be happier if we fit that culture. So I like to say if you have core values, and I love that you have people, a company should be brutally intolerant yeah. of violations of those. But it's usually two or three values. It's not a bunch of things. And then you can be diverse around everything else, but you got to be clear about what those values are. Yeah. I mean, do you, but do you think there is a disconnect with what people are saying, what they need? Because there's a lot of narrative. I want flexibility. I want to work from home. I want to do what I want or otherwise. But the data kind of shows that people are lonelier than ever. They're disconnected than ever. Like, I, I'm not sure that people, you know, Steve Jobs said he never, you know, if he asked people what they, or who was it? Uh, Henry Ford said, you know, people. if I asked people what they want, they would have said faster horses. 
right. you know, and Steve Jobs would not, you know, they would have said, oh, I want a better Walkman, you know, and, and, and so I'm not sure that people are not wrong when they're saying a lot of what they think they want from work isn't maybe what they want from work. Well, and the beauty of that is if you go, hey, here's the deal. We're going to work together. We're going to be together most of the time. And, and anonymity is not okay. So you can opt in or not. Okay, so it, let's say there's three different kinds of people. There's the ones that know that's what they want and they opt yeah. in. And then there's the ones that don't know, they, that they really know that they don't want that and they opt out. It's that middle group that's like, I think I want that. But when they have to make the call and you go, it's up to you, a lot of them will opt in and then go, oh gosh, I love this. Because you know that, yeah, that's that's going to satisfy right. a lot of people. So what you have to do is make that call and give people a choice. Yeah, and you don't, middle... want the, you don't want the quit and stay people on your team who are like, you know, they know you're going to call them back in the office and they don't want to come in. So they're kind of looking for other jobs. And like, I actually just think if everyone put a stake in the ground, said what they wanted, all these people would quit and go find the right company and not, and not a, you know, we'd get it over with faster. You know what's ironic, Bob? And this is always scares CEOs into doing the right thing. I say, you know that the third of people that don't like it the way it is and want you to change it? Yeah. When you try to please them, you know who you end up running off? The top third. Yeah. And they're like, shit. Excuse me, did I say that on your podcast? It's they're okay. like, oh no, I can't do that. When you scare them and realize, how do you feel about alienating your best people? That's when it gives them the courage to alienate the ones who probably don't want to be there. And yeah. it's usually a small group of people, but they're very vocal. Yeah, I call it the vocal minority and the danger of the, yeah. the vocal minority combined with anonymous feedback can actually yes. be really dangerous because I, I we used a system for years of anonymous feedback and then we dropped it as the company got bigger because I said to the, the founder, I can't tell. You should have channels for reporting really, you know, whether uh, yes. things that people are afraid of or otherwise or power dynamic sexual harassment. That's totally different, like in terms of safety. But I yes. can't tell whether this is one person who's really loud 10 times or 10 people with the same issue. And I and, and I would look at it differently. You know, we were fully remote for 15 years. Someone would come in, they think they'd want remote, they realize they didn't. Then they try to say we should get off. And I'm like, look, 99% of the people do not want that. We've been through this cycle. So should we change the whole company? Or should we help you find a job that's a better fit? And I, I think a lot of companies with feedback in real time, they 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 the vocal minority is really dangerous because it's yes. a group of people that makes themselves very, and obviously it's not minority in the context of any, no. around, but they, whatever the issue is, they make themselves very loud and they use statements like everyone thinks here, everyone here, <laughs> or th things like that, or all people are leaving because of this issue. And sometimes they just, they need to go. Not everything else needs to change. We, I told this story. I like to tell the story about it. Southwest Airlines, Herb Kelleher, when he was the CEO there, the guy wrote uh, the ticket. Yeah, yeah, the letters. This is go ahead, tell yeah, it. Yeah, and the lady wrote the story. letters saying this is terrible. He said, We'll miss you. Yeah, tell the story. Most people probably haven't heard it. Yeah. Well, yeah, the lady complained because they made jokes during the safety check. Somebody said, In the event of a water landing, we'll be coming by with drinks and towels, you know? Yeah. And this lady was like, Oh, I've been flying for years and that's in, in, irresponsible and you should change that or I'm, I'm not going to fly anymore. And her humor, but see, here's the thing. They knew that humor was part of their company. They were very intentional. And he said, hey, that's who we are. We'll miss you. Yeah. I think she wrote letters like every week to him. That was the story. Is that and what eventually, it was? Yeah. And they brought him the letters. And eventually he like was like, dear, whatever, we think you should find a different airline. Right. And they, by the way, they did not try to train people to be funny. They hired people whose talent was humor and they trained them to fly Tournaments. planes. And so this is the, you cannot be everything to everyone. And I think... 
I think CEOs today, there's a tremendous burden. There are all kinds of new responsibilities. There are all kinds of people yelling around, this should be our focus and that should be our focus and entirely new areas of the business. And and you can't do it all. No. And so many are handcuffed because they feel like I'm never allowed to tell anybody that this isn't the place for you. And the thing is, that's not good for those people and it's not good for your organization. But we live in this society that says, affirm everyone and everything. Yeah. And it's like, there's a danger in that. The companies that are unafraid to say, I have a culture and we're going to actually stick with that. They're the ones that actually succeed the most. And they draw people who want to work there. The other ones are generic. And people are like, there's nothing special about working there. Yeah, the stat I, I thought was interesting, and again, in terms of leaders kind of putting a stake in the ground is, you know, Gen Z wants their company to stand up for, it was something like, six wants them to stand up for the things that they believe in. And I remember thinking like, well, that's pretty dangerous, because A, that's sort of antithetical to DEI, assuming that everyone thinks the same, and B, do you want them to stand up for the things that you don't believe in? <laughs> I mean, that's right. that's a problematic statement. There's a great business website out there called Business Over Politics, which is all about that. It just says, listen, if we really want to be tolerant, then let's not choose those things. Let's stick to what we do in business, advocate for things that have to do with our business, but let's really make it about employees and customers feeling welcome around what we do for them. And if people want to say, yeah, empower the employees, if they say, why did we support this thing? Because these employees came to us and they said, this is really important. We said, great, here's time, treasure, our Instagram channel, these employees wanted to advocate for that. I, I think once you start cherry picking these things, it becomes impossible. That's the thing. And it's truly not inclusive right. in the truest sense, in the right sense of the word. Right. Because back to that quote, I want my company to you know advocate for the policies that I agree about. The assumption is that everyone agrees on the same thing. Well, that is not a diverse company. And again, whether you're on whatever ideological spectrum, yeah, this you, doesn't matter. You, you should not want everyone in the company to be all the way on the right or all the way on the left because that is going to be a <laughs> an echo chamber. And if the CEO wants that, they must have the courage to admit it so the employees and customers who don't belong can opt out if they want to. Yeah, I, I believe, look, different if you're a Nike or a consumer brand or elsewhere, I think for a lot of small and mid-sized businesses and B2B businesses that aren't normally in the public realm, I, I actually think the notion of a company opinion is a little strange because I whose opinion is it? It is going to be usually the CEO's opinion. And 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 so I, I'm not, if the CEO wants to have an opinion, then CEO should have an opinion. I think representing that as the company's opinion could be very inaccurate, whether that's an accurate representation of what people believe. Well, you know, and Bob, I love talking about this because like in the Silicon Valley, it tends to be one way. And there's so many employees that work at these companies in the Silicon Valley who don't necessarily buy into the politics, Yeah. but they go to work thinking I have to pretend I do because it's kind of clear that if I don't agree with that, then I don't belong here. And I think that's really dangerous because it it destroys the culture. It destroys teamwork. And I think CEOs should either say, you know something, We've, we've gone way out over our skis. And we need to come back and be in who we are. Or they need to say, yes, we are a XYZ politics company. And we're willing to limit the employees we recruit and even the customers we sell to based on that. But you can't have your cake and eat it too. Right. And that would be honest, right? It'd be honest. Yeah, exactly. I, I think Basecamp, the Basecamp found, I mean, a little controversial. They said, look, no politics at work. And everyone made a whole big deal about it. And all these people quit. And then they got like 20,000 applications of people who (laughs) did not want politics to be talked about at work all the time. And, you know, the the people that made a big deal out of it, they should have just gone, oh, okay, I'm going to go work at a company that makes politics at work. 
In other words, don't be mad at a company for choosing to be neutral around right. things that aren't central to their business. And that's what we need to do. We make we need to make it politically incorrect to require people to choose politics rather than the mission. Like I want to work at a hotel that serves its customers and and loves that and people work together and has a beautiful hotel and it's safe and it's clean. It's like, wait, I have to buy into something that has nothing to do with that in order to fit here. Yeah. So I I think that I hope that we get back to the the idea of excellence in business and true true inclusivity of people. Yeah, and I think you said it before. I, I think that people use some people have have weaponized the term culture fit, I, and, and I've I've never felt like I don't think that ever means that you want people that are carbon copies of each other the same or otherwise. But in any organization, you have to have whether it's religious or civic or business or nonprofit, otherwise or sporting, you have to have a few core principles that you are all going to agree to it to hold the thing together. And I think it's two or three. When you go into a, an organization, they have 12. What you know is yeah. like, this isn't real. Because yeah. nobody, if they only hire people with all 12, there's only like four people in the world that already have those. Now you right. can have some that they're like permission to play, simple values, and some you wish you aspire to. Right. But your core values, the ones that are a filter for who belongs and how we behave, should be two or three that are so fundamental. Yeah. And that has, that's the shared, everything else can be different, but that's the shared yeah. reason. My, my example, I used my, the, one of my books was like, if you have a, whatever religious study group on Sunday morning, Bible, Torah, whatever, whatever it might be, you don't want an atheist coming every morning to that group and fighting with you about everything you do. That might be Steve and he lives on your street and you're friends with him and you like him. But in the context of that group and its purpose, that is not the right fit. Vanderbilt University, and this was like 15 years ago, they were way ahead of their time. They kicked off the Christian club because one of their things said to be the president, you have to be Christian. And they said, that's not tolerant. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Yeah. We're not saying we don't love people that aren't this, but that's what the club is. So it would right. make sense of that. And they, so it's just crazy. And that's like Southwest Airlines or, or Nordstrom. Somebody's saying, I want to work there. Like, but you don't love customers. You won't do things. Like, it doesn't right. matter. I want you to be tolerant of me. It's like, no, yeah. we don't want you to work here because that's who we are. Right. I've heard it. Look, there's some things that just are what they are. And in the name of, again, I think we talked about like a little too much of this term uncomfortable or discomfort or whatever. If you are going to be a med student, you can't say, I can't, the sight of blood makes me pass out and I can't do this. And you need to like change this whole training <laughs> up. Like someone's going to be like, maybe this isn't for you. <laughs> Medicine's not for you. That comes with the job of being a doctor. What's crazy is it's common sense. Yeah. It's truth. It's clarity. And yet, there's places in the world where people are questioning this. And, and I think that good companies are going to go, no, no, no. We can love somebody and dignifiedly move them out of the organization when they don't aspire to our core values. That doesn't mean we're not inclusive or tolerant. It just means we actually know what we believe. They shouldn't enjoy it. It's kind of like your zone of genius. If they are X in the organization, always talking about why, you know, they're, they're not going to like it. So let's, let's flip to quickly to the uh, CEO suite. Um, All right. Yeah, with the the people on top of these piles. Um, so someone asked me lately about CEOs that I admire, and I'm not great at pulling out of like code storage, but I actually said, you know what? I probably wouldn't remember their names. Like I've heard about them, I've seen these stories. They're kind of the under the radar people who aren't making it uh, about them, and and I, I know you've talked about this as well. So how can CEOs, especially entrepreneurial founders, like 
keep that desire for the spotlight at bay because the Inc. 500s just came out and I, I could see everyone doing it. I remember we did it. All I got was sales calls and harassed for like months. And then we just stopped doing it. But I remember at the time, it felt like such a good you know, validation thing or kind of winning, winning the award. So how do they... How do they sort of keep that humility? And then how do they, you said hungry, humble, smart. How do they find that in people in their teams and, and build an organization where it isn't everyone looking for the spotlight? So I wrote a book uh, a few years ago, right when COVID came out. So it was a, not a great time to release a book, but um, it was called The Motive. And I, when I wrote it, I said, this should have been the first book I wrote because it was after I wrote like 11 books that I realized, oh my gosh, there's some people whose reason for being a CEO was wrong. And as a result of that, almost everything I teach didn't make any sense to them. And so the motive is about there's only two motives for leadership. Yeah. So if you want to, a person that says, I really want to be a CEO, it's like, okay, great. Tell me why. And the two motives are at the highest level are because I want to have responsibility to serve and help others be better than they can be. That's a burden. But it's a burden I like because I think I'm good at it and I can help other people. The other motive is because it's it's a reward for a lifetime of hard work. I think I deserve this. And the reward can be, yeah, sure, money or power. Fame is a huge one, recognition, or even because then I get the freedom to do whatever I want. I can come to work every day and just cherry pick what I work on based on what I think is fun. Yeah. And if your motive is reward, none of the stuff we teach is going to make any sense because you're going to look at it all and go, but I don't feel like doing that or that's hard or it's, as you said, uncomfortable. Yeah. And you know what I couldn't believe, Bob, is how many people read this book and said, oh my gosh, I've been operating out of the, with the wrong rewards. I've been thinking it's a reward and I don't yeah. like it and I want to change it. So it's not like a black or white thing. And by the way, how does this work in sports? We talk about How does it work when you give the player a huge contract for what they did in the past? Like everyone regrets those. Con it's not everyone regrets those exactly. contracts. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I love the NFL draft because evaluating character to me is critical. I mean, you can measure their 40 time or their hand size or whatever that, but so much comes down to character. And the question is when they get that contract, are they going to go, oh no, they're paying me a lot of money. I need to work hard and I need to prove that I can help them and I need to play my part or look at, I've made it. I've arrived. And I'm going to go enjoy this primarily. I mean, we should enjoy life, but that's fundamentally two different ways of living. You should never draft a player. You should never hire an employee. And a board of directors should never appoint a CEO who thinks they're being rewarded. People should be a little bit nervous and say, I have to prove this by serving others. And if that motive is off, there's no coaching I can do for somebody. So your books bookended my leadership journey, right? Because I got this one before I was a CEO and I actually read the motive as I was going through the process of turning over the CEO reins of the company I started to my number two, who was number two for 10 years. And, and I had already been through a lot of the thought process in the book, but it really brought it all together. And I think the simplest but most fundamental thing that you said in that book was the job of the primary job of the CEO is to lead an executive team. And, yes. and, and, you know, a lot of people aren't doing that. And I always joked around, I'd see a lot of these founders, they're founder, CEO, and chairman. And I, and, and I always say to people, look, call yourself president. First of all, that looks ridiculous for your two-person company. But how are you a CEO <laughs> if you don't have an executive team? I get president. 
I was managing director until our company, I think, was 100 employees. And then we hired other managing directors. And then it got kind of awkward where people were like, well, I, should I ask this person or you? And I, right. I kind of reluctantly took that term later on. But at that point, I looked around and I said, I've got an executive team. But actually, I had started handing most of the executive team over to my number two years before. And when I read the book, I realized, oh, he's the CEO, right? I'm, I'm not doing that correspondent. I'm not leading and managing the team every day. But I, I think, again, that sometimes they come from sales, they come from marketing, they really love that. It's the reward. But like I said, go with president, because you're kind of fooling yourself taking the term CEO. If Unless you're, you know, have dual personality, and you play all these <laughs> roles, and you're talking to yourself all day, if you don't have a management team, you're not a CEO. Yeah, you know, it's so funny that there's five behaviors that I found that I write about in the motive that CEOs who don't want to be a CEO, they don't do. Okay. Like yeah. they go, I don't want to do that. And one is managing their team. Yeah. I don't want to deal with people, right? Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> I've had CEOs say to me, if I didn't have to manage people or go to meetings, I'd really love my job. And it's like, no, that no, no. That person's probably the head of sales who says that, right? Like that's often <laughs> right. the persona. Right. But they should be the head of sales. Yeah. Right. I just want to go out and talk to customers and convince yeah. them to use our stuff. It's like, no, you're not running the company. Another one is, is literally doing team building. Now, again, not experiential, but it's like, if you don't want to go sit with your people and for two days and build a team and talk about what you're doing, and you think that's not worth your time, you're not the CEO. Yeah, You can't delegate that to an HR person or a consultant. You have to be involved in that. Another one is just running great meetings is something that a lot of people, I hate meetings, yeah. as I just said. The other one is, um, oh gosh, I can't remember what the other two are. Oh, repeating yourself. Great CEOs are actually CROs. Chief repeating officer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and when the CEO goes, man, I'm so tired of giving that talk. It's like, oh, no, you don't I understand. I had that moment so many times where I was like, we have to, someone asked the question, I'm like, we have told people this three times. And we read the article about the seven times. I'm like, I've said it four times. Like, I, you know, so yeah. <laughs> three more to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and here's where it comes down to the motive, Bob. Why don't I want to repeat myself? Because I find it kind of boring and I'm not excited about that. It's not entertaining me anymore. It's about yourself. And it's okay for people. I love that people read the book and said, yeah, either I don't think I want to be the CEO or I want to do this differently because I was doing it for the wrong reason. Because we all slide sometimes. We all do. Yeah. So anyway. And I have a theory on why I think this is so hard for, for a lot of CEO, entrepreneurial CEOs to give up. There's a whole thing wrapped in their identity, and there's a lot of that stuff, which I totally. think is is known, particularly entrepreneurial CEOs. And 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 my story mimics this. A lot of not A students, a lot of ADD, a lot of early life not really rewarding the things that they were good at and feeling like outcast and misfit. And then finally, again, totally in your line of wrong reason. <laughs> They figure out what they're good at. They're the CEO. It's the reward. It's the validation of everything. And then it's really hard to let that go. They don't have the MBA. They don't have the PhD. They don't have the other sort of trophy things that people you know, put around. And, and so that's my theory on why it's particularly hard for entrepreneurs. Yeah, it becomes their identity. Yeah. And that's dangerous. You know, it's good that people lean into work and make it's an important part of their life. But if it's your identity that you need to feel good about yourself, then it, it can be very dangerous. And, and your PhD or your MBA or whatever else shouldn't be your identity either. So right. everybody is like, what do I have? And it's like, no, you're a child of God. You're beloved for who you are. And when if you retire and nobody knows who you are or, or something happens, it shouldn't matter. But that's hard. 
Yeah, and and if anyone hasn't read from strength to strength, he is great about how why you have to shift this too. Like you have to that can't be your identity forever. I love the people you've had these people write you emails that have fourteen acronyms like at the end of their. Yes. Oh, and God. I'm like I don't even know what these things are, but the fact that you're listing ten of them tells me that you have a little bit of a complex around this. Exactly, and you know one of the things that gets to is that. CEOs are just, we're all just adult children. You know, we're all kids yeah. that came with bruises and, and wounds and things. And so when we get older, we really need to explore those things so that we don't let them leak into yeah. everything else. So there's another type of CEO uh, that we've had a little bit of a reevaluation of, and that's the kind of brilliant tech CEO. Uh, having spent a lot of the last 18 months watching what I call uh, the entire series of corporate malfeasance shows, uh, starring Travis Kalanick, Adam Newman, <laughs> Elizabeth Holmes. And I'm sure none of these will put a a, a candle to Jonah Hill playing Sam Bankman-Fried when Michael Lewis's book comes out on uh, on that whole debacle. Have you already decided that that's who they're going to have to cast? Uh, he is 100% going to be him. I mean, I, I, everyone <laughs> I've talked to is like, that's in the bag. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Michael Lewis won, won the lottery there. So, and and we have Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg talking about a cage match to fight uh, this stuff out. So like, where do you think these CEOs go off track? Um, I, I, I'm sure ego is part of this. And how can people kind of learn from from these mistakes, particularly in the more venture side of the house? Right. Well, as you said, kind of before you alluded to this, ego comes from people not having self-confidence, yeah. you know, not having self-respect or or esteem. And so the problem is these are people that are being rewarded for giving in to their lack of self-confidence and self-esteem. And they're overcompensating and people are rewarding them for it. And so it's dangerous. It's dangerous to be around that because you're always susceptible to what their unique cravings or desires are. And as you said, the best CEOs in the world, nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. If the CEO of Southwest Airlines, the last two CEOs of Southwest Airlines walked into a person's company, nobody would know who they were. Yeah. And you know why? They don't care. That's not their thing. And so what I say is when people say, who's the best CEO? And I say, you mean famous ones? Because that probably is a limiting factor. So yeah, I think what you're saying is exactly right. I don't like working with most companies in the Silicon Valley because they're still looking up to these guys and saying, yeah, that's what we want to be too. How do we become like them? Yeah. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. You need to, they're cautionary tales. But they should be cautionary tales. But but I, I remember when Michael Lewis wrote Liar's Poker and years later, he said, you know, I wrote this to like turn everyone off to banking. And to my disgust, it became like an anthem for everyone to go into banking. I, it, It's surprising. <laughs> well, what I would just say to that is that's because the media, which is worse than it's ever been, yeah, still celebrates him. We celebrate infamy as much as we do fame. It's the same thing. And what I think what, what the, the thing I want to tell people is I've worked with some of these CEOs. They're not happy. They're desperately trying to to hold on to something and it it comes at such a great cost. Yeah, it's like that what was the show um the one about we work, you know. I was just going to say so that was phenomenally well done. We crashed. I mean, great actors really? and, and 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 then when I heard that Andreessen Horowitz invested in his new company after watching that I I I really I it was sort of in disbelief because I have a ton of respect for them. But I, I don't understand mm-hmm. how you could watch that and invest in that person's next business. Now, I suppose maybe he had like a serious trauma-induced life experience change, or maybe they just think that it's a good idea. 
But if I had a firm, I would not invest. It's not, it's just can't be just about the dollars. It has to be, I want to believe in what they're doing and who they are. But maybe the guy had a redemptive experience, who knows? But afterward, it didn't seem like it because he came out with all his money and then he was still doing talks. And so well, the fire festival guy is selling tickets again. I mean, this is, you oh, see this, man. Billy's telling them people the first thing sold out. He's selling tickets. He doesn't know where it is. He doesn't know when it is. I'm like, I, I've literally, I've literally seen this movie before. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's broken human beings that double down on their brokenness. They have their ladder leaned up against the wrong wall and they're still trying to climb it and they have to come down and put the ladder on the other side of the, the room. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we could go on forever, but I'll, I'll I'm going to ask love you, I'll ask you the last question uh, I always ask everyone, and this is kind of multivariant. So it could be singular, repeated or personal or professional, but what's a mistake that you've made in, in your kind of life or career that you've learned the most from? Okay, so I've made so many. I mean, it really is different. It's like I make small ones, I make big ones. By the grace of God, I haven't made any of the big ones that would hurt the people around me so much. Yeah, you know. Um, although I've had, I've done, certainly done that, but I mean, it's like I have not done horrific things. So two that I would say that I think people it might be helpful to hear in their practical ones. One is I remember once early in my career, I had a team, and I really believed in teamwork. And this is before I started my own company. And it was being a team player was everything. And I hired somebody on my team because I thought they'd be a good fit and they would get a lot of work done. And they did, but they weren't a team player and they really frustrated my other team members. So um, I promoted them because I thought, well, she gets a lot of work done. And the people on my team, thankfully, came to me and said, you know, you talk about teamwork. You really need to change what you say or what you do because you just promoted the least team player. Huh. And so I had to go back and go, oh, I am a hypocrite. And I was valuing practical things over the the culture. And I had to help that person try to become a team player and they couldn't, and then help them find a place to land. And then the performance of my team went through the roof. And I realized that that I had the capacity for being hypocritical and that I was not walking my talk, so to speak. Um, another mistake I made, I didn't realize at the time, but looking back is when I got that offer from Bain and Company, I took it because it was the best job in America. It paid more than other jobs. And everybody else thought it was pretty cool that I got that job. What I didn't realize is none of the things they were going to have me do were things I like to do. And yeah. so I wasn't going to succeed. I wasn't going to enjoy it, which is not to say that are some jobs. It was, you have a, a, lot other, it was a job that other people thought was great. Not that you thought exactly. was great. Yeah. External exactly. validation. Yeah. And so I let my ego drive that decision rather than you know, what other people would see rather than what I would experience. So I, now I realize you have to lean into joy, what gives you joy and energy if you want to be your best. And you got to walk away from things when they don't make sense. So those are two, I know those are kind of wimpy. No, gosh, that, you know. th that counts. And, you know, something that, that you said in the first one that really resonated with me, I hear a lot. It's I think in a lot of times in trying to not make a hard decision, we, punt it and only leave ourselves with harder decisions. And I think yes. I've seen so many new managers. It's their biggest thing. Well, I just, uh, maybe this will go away. Maybe I just promote the person that'll solve the problem that they're toxic. And it only leads to a harder and worse conversation down the line. Absolutely. Uh, it's a human condition. You know, it's like delaying pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never makes it better. No, it never does. does. <laughs> That's an excellent point. Well, Pat, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You've had a such an outsized influence on on a lot of my leadership and and development in our company. So really enjoy the opportunity to talk about all of these concepts with you today. 
Well, that's gracious of you to say that. I appreciate it. I'm glad for that. And uh, I've loved being on and talking to you. This has been a party. So God bless you. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Pat and his work and his books on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as that's what helps new users discover the show and great guests like Pat. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.